Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Amen. Well, good to have you with us this morning. My name is Kent. I'm one of the pastors here. If we haven't had the chance to meet, uh, I'd love to meet you before you leave today. Um, but so glad to have you with us. Uh, in just a second, we're going to do something that we do every single Sunday. We're going to take a second to greet the people around us. Uh, but before we do that, uh, I did just want to give you a heads up. We put this on social media earlier this week, but just in case you missed it, uh, today's teaching that we're going to hear in just a few minutes, um, the passage that it comes out of deals with the reality um, of sexual assault. Uh, And and so there's going to be lots of those themes in our teaching this morning. And I tell you that, uh, one, to say uh, the Bible doesn't shy away from hard topics. Uh, It it doesn't shy away from the realities of a broken world. Um, And so we're going to talk honestly and openly about that this morning. But I I tell you that also just to uh, give you a warning. Maybe that's not something you're ready uh, to be here for this morning. Maybe that's not something you're mentally or emotionally prepared for, or maybe that's not something that your kids who are with you in the service right now are mentally or emotionally prepared for. And so uh, if you need to leave, if you need to not be here for that, if you just need to read the sermon later on on your own timing, that's totally fine. We completely understand that. Uh, That's available to you online. Uh, You're welcome to just slip out during uh, the meet and greet time that we'll have just a second. Nobody will look at you weird. It'll be totally fine. But we did want to give you a warning uh, that that's coming here in a few minutes. So just a heads up for those of you whom it affects. Um, just wanted to let you know about that. Morning. I don't know about you guys, I had a fantastic weekend. If you didn't, I'm sorry. I am here to brag about it. Uh, this weekend we got to take uh, the members of our church family to a cabin and what we call a family vacation. We do it once a year and we just go to a cabin, we cook food together, we eat together, we play board games, we go on hikes, and we just sit and be, and it was great. So this is creating FOMO in you. (laughs) It's intended. (laughs) Become a member. You can sign up on the website. It's really that easy. Um, Like I said, my name is Jeff, I'm one of the pastors here, and Apparently, some of you only know me as the pastor that uttered the word spicy sex life in a sermon. Uh, If you don't know what I'm talking about, this is in reference to a sermon two weeks ago. And if you're thinking, surely there is a context where it is okay to say those words, unfortunately, there wasn't. So, uh, we are in the fourth week of our series on the life of David, and We've been just taking a look at different snapshots of David's life and see what we can learn about who God is and who we are. So I want to do a quick little reset in what we've been up to this point. So we have talked about David's origin story, that he was the eighth son in his family. He was the runt of the litter that when God needed to install a new king over the nation of Israel, he picked this little boy who had been watching sheep. It's an epic story of an underdog whose place in life had been working in his father's fields, 
And it turns out God used those years that David spent in the pastures to prepare David for one of the most incredible stories in this narrative where he picks up a sling and takes on a giant named Goliath, paving the way ever since for every kid's Sunday school class to ever marvel at the story. And two weeks ago, we look at the friendship between David and Jonathan, the rightful heir to the throne, how Jonathan stepped out of the way of what God was doing through his friend David and this beautiful friendship that existed between them. And then last week, we look at what God demonstrated through David's relationship with Saul, the current king who wanted to kill David and and tried to do so in every way imaginable and how David would not take matters in his own hands, but he trusted God even when his life was on the line. And all of this, all of this up to this point, we see how God raised David up. He was revered by the nation of Israel, and David was consistently trusting God's power and sufficiency in the face of all odds. And all these stories and more provided the foundation for why David shines so brightly throughout the pages of the scripture. And like Marcus said in the first week, it's not very often you have a warrior king who is also a songwriter. And through the Psalms, we see David's posture of trust and reliance and faithfulness to God, how David was called a man after God's own heart. And all these things inspire us to love and trust God the way we see David doing so, so many times. However, today, we're going to get introduced to one of the darkest moments of David's life. It's a total train wreck. There's sometimes on Sundays when we look in Scripture, and because of what the Bible says, in particular passage we're covering, we all leaving smiling and encouraged Joy filling on hearts, gladness on our faces. But today will not be one of those days. Today hits like a ton of bricks. It's an absolute catastrophe. David shipwrecks his life, and it is heavy from beginning to end. So will the feeling in this room. In 2 Samuel 11 is where we pick up. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there. If you have an app, go ahead and boot it up there. 2 Samuel chapter 11, and we'll be looking at one of the lowest points of David's life. And we're going to try, what we're going to try to do is we're going to look at the two main characters in the story and draw some conclusions, what we can think and pray about. 2 Samuel 11, verse 1. In the spring, at the time where kings go off to war, so apparently they have seasons for war like we have seasons for football and basketball, David sent out Joab. Uh, sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. This is like the ominous music beginning to play. Kings in this time will lead their armies into battle. They will go out with them. David's kingdom is currently at war with the Ammonites and Rabbah, and if you notice, David isn't fighting with his people as he should be. This is weird if you've been keeping track of David's life up to this point. One of uh, David's claim to fame is actually how good of a fighter he was. It started with Goliath and how he continued to conquer different enemies of the Israelites. 
And he would proceed to do that over and over again. But not only that, not that David was known to be a good fighter, David was also known up to this point to be at the right place at the right time, being faithful to what God has called him, even at great cost to himself. David's always been faithful, always been at the right place. But at this point, he's chilling in his palace watching Netflix. He sent his army out who had pledged their lives to him. He sent them out away from his leadership with his, without his help and skills so he can lounge around. And we see from this one verse in that in this very moment that David was not protecting his men and his people by fighting their enemies. He was not providing safety and cover for his kingdom. He was not pursuing problems. He was hanging back and let other people handle those problems. He was, he's disengaged here, turned off to his purpose as king, neglecting his responsibility and calling as a king. He is not living into what God has called him to be. And it doesn't end well. Verse 2. One evening David got from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. Some of you may have heard this if you grew up in the church. A saying that goes like this. Sin will take you further than you want to go. Keep you longer than you want to stay. Cost you more than you want to pay and will hurt others along the way. It rhymes, so you know it's true. (laughs) So David sees this woman and asks about her. And then look at the next verse. It says, the man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. One of the things at the root of most sin is objectification, turning people into objects to use for our own benefit and pleasure. In fact, most crimes start with dehumanizing of another person. This is how you end up with the Nazi Germany or the slave trade or the sex trafficking. When you begin to see people as less than human. This unnamed person in the Bible says to David, Bathsheba is someone else's daughter. She is someone else's wife. This is a person, not an object. She exists in relationship with other people. She is loved and valued by others. She has a life, a story, a personality. She's a human person in the very image of God, not an object for you to use. But David dismisses all of that. He dismisses the fact that he's dealing with a real person with real relationships. In verse 4, then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him. He slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness, and she went back home. I want to point out a few things to make sure we're observing the story correctly so we can clearly see and understand what just happened. First, when it says Bathsheba had been purifying herself, from her uncleanness. It means she's, it means she's doing a, bath, uh, a ritual bathing and washing after her period. It is a symbolic ceremonial bathing in line with a cultural custom at the time and also in line with Leviticus chapter 15. In other words, Bathsheba, she was obeying God. Second, the text said David sees her from his roof. It does not say where Bathsheba was located. 
It does not say Bathsheba's doing something or being somewhere she's not supposed to be, that she's just showing off or something. There's no indication that she is somewhere that she shouldn't be. In fact, the person we are told is not where he should be is David. He should be off at war with his men. So while she is fulfilling her God-given responsibilities, David is abdicating his. Third, in the next chapter, David will be confronted about all of this. And the illustration that was used to confront David is that Bathsheba is compared to an innocent lamb. And finally, it says David sent messengers who took her. He saw her, took her, and laid with her. In fact, in Genesis 34, the very same verb structure is used as when Shechem rapes a woman named Dinah. He takes her for himself, while here David uses kingly authority to send armed soldiers to take Bathsheba and bring her to the palace bedroom. In other words, Bathsheba did not have a choice here. Her consent is not just, it's not just not given. It's not even considered relevant. Her thoughts and feelings on the matter are irrelevant in the kingdom. Whatever the king says, it goes. In light of all of this, what's actually happening here is Bathsheba is a victim and a survivor of a sexual assault. And as we continue to read, she's, not only her body was taken, she will also lose her husband, her home, and her child. She's a victim who suffers because of David's sin. I do not believe it is best to describe this as an adultery. While it is that, but it is so much more than that. This is sexual abuse, and honestly, if we use a more modern-day language, we'll call this power rape. She did not have a choice. She is a victim. Sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, Cost you more than you want to pay and will hurt others along the way. Verse 5. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was and how the soldiers were and how the war was going. David's looking for a way to cover this up. Verse 8. And David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. He's, he tries to get Uriah to go home to his wife, hoping that he will sleep with her, think this baby is his and this whole thing will be covered up. But look at verse 9. Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. David was told Uriah did not go home, so he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are all staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open country. How can I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? And as surely as you live, I will, do, I will not do such thing. David's plan does not work because Uriah is too honorable of course he wanted to go home to his wife, but he slept outside at the king's palace because his fellow soldiers were not at home with their wives. 
They were protecting everyone out there. How could he enjoy something that they couldn't? And most of David's life so far, David has been the one that's acting faithfully, even when it costs him. Now a man who is acting honorably and faithfully is keeping him from covering up the worst thing that he has ever done. So that was plan A. And it didn't work, so David moves on to plan B in verse 12. Then David said to him, stay here one more day and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him. And David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. That's plan B. Uriah wouldn't go home and sleep with his wife sober. Maybe he will do so if he is drunk. David invites Uriah over for a dinner party and gets Uriah wasted. But Uriah still does not go to his house. David is at a point now that a drunk Uriah is more righteous than a sober King David. And it started with him just not being where God wanted him to be and not doing what God wanted him to do. And now he is spiraling out of control. And he's getting more and more desperate and will take it further. And here's plan C in verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in the front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. The king writes his message to the army commander and says, and seals it up where Uriah cannot read it. And Uriah literally carries his own death sentence back to war and hands it to his supervisor, Joab. And the next thing you know, in verse 15, or verse 16, so while Joab had a city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. Where the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the, Bible, of the battle. So David hasn't killed Uriah isn't the only one who dies here because in this king-led cover-up attempt, Joab had to do something unwise from a military perspective to get Uriah killed. So he got other people killed as well. The king of Israel, the man after God's own heart, the psalmist, is now a sexual predator and a murderer. David's power gets corrupted and abused. He, instead of using his power to protect and provide like he is called to, he sees this opportunity to use his power to take, to grab something that isn't his, but that he wants anyways. He uses God-given authority to harm instead of to bless. He uses this immense power to point outward instead of using his power to point outward and protect and bring flourishing to others. Instead, he takes that power and turns it in on himself. He uses this gift for himself. And heartbreakingly, it takes this, all this takes a form of raping a woman who is missing her husband to have sex with him without consent and then use his power to cover it up and because he can have someone else murdered and get away with it, and he does. And jump down to the end of the chapter to finish this part of the story in verse 26. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. And after time of mourning was over, David had her, 
had her brought to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, cost you more than you want to pay, and hurt others along the way. What a gripping picture the story provides for us. A king's laziness and apathy towards God's calling on his life becomes temptation, which becomes covetedness, which becomes sexual assault, which becomes a murder of an innocent and honorable man and others caught in the crossfire. So for the rest of the time, I want to draw some conclusion from the two main characters here. I want to start with David first. Up to this point, David was a hero. He almost always does the right thing, the God-honoring thing. He's an extreme example of faith and humility and love and strength of character. I mean, he's the best of us. He's God's guy. He's the king that God had appointed, a man after God's own heart. And that's what made this whole situation so horrifying. This is what sin can do to us, to the best of us. If you read the story and think, I could never do something like that, then you have missed the whole point. You might not do exactly what David does, but you are just as capable, actually more capable of blowing up your life and the lives of the people around you. I am just as capable of doing that. Look, if I rolled up to a battle and Goliath is standing right there, huge, big, and scary, I'm not fighting him. I'm just not. You can judge me all you want. I'm, not go I'm probably going to pee and poo my pants is what's going to happen. <laughs> if I find myself in a cave with a dude that's been ruining my life, been chasing me for years and trying to kill me, if I, he doesn't know I'm right behind him, He's catching a shiv right in his back. <laughs> but David this whole time, he's all, you know, I'm going to trust God with this. I don't know how this is going to unfold, but I'm going to trust God's got this. And I'm, going to, I'm just going to follow what he has called me to do. He's the best of us. That's the point of the story. And this is what sin does to him. How much danger are we in? Do not read this and think to yourself, David is so despicable, I would never. No, no, we have the same disease as him. And he was stronger. That's how much danger we're in. And here's the insight that we get from the story. It starts small. You make 1,000 decisions before you make that one decision that ruins everything. Nobody shipwrecks their life out of nowhere. We go prayerless for weeks. We conceal our struggles for weeks. We don't let people who love Jesus into our struggles and speak into our lives for weeks and months. In my time as a pastor, um, I knew a woman, um, her and her husband. In fact, I actually knew them when they started dating. I got to see them date and engage and get married and built this life together. And then one day she had an affair. And her husband found out about the affair. It absolutely devastated him. 
And when we finally got a chance to sit down and talk, I asked her, what, what happened? And she responded with, I don't know. I don't know what happened. I don't know how I got here. I never expected to go this far. I never think I would do this. I asked her about her relationship with God, and she said she hasn't felt God's presence in a very long time. I asked, when's the last time you prayed? She said, I haven't much at all in the last year. Did you tell anyone you're struggling? No, not really. Who are the people in your life that you're talking to that's trying to encourage you? My coworkers. I'm like, do they love Jesus? No. Are there any believers in your life that, that, that you're talking to that you're asking for prayer, for encouragement? No. Every day for the past year, she decided she will not draw near to God, confess her struggles and doubts to him, and ask for grace and power to change. She would not repent and lay her sins before the Lord. She didn't allow other followers of Jesus to help her or speak truth to her. She didn't make one decision. She made a thousand decisions leading up to that one decision. And the devastation that one decision has brought was heartbreaking. Most of us are not making that one decision right now. We're not making that one decision that could ruin our lives. But we might be making that 1,000 decisions that could lead us there. Few of you right now might be making that one decision that will destroy your life. And my plea is don't do it. And some of us in here might be thinking, I am never going to do something that totally ruins my life. I have more sense and more control than that. So that 1,000 decision doesn't really affect me. And you might be right. But I will, I will say the goal of your life is not to avoid ruining your life. The goal of your life should be walking with God and enjoying him forever. In fact, there was a time that Jesus basically said, don't be afraid of people that they can only kill you once, but be afraid of God who can kill you forever. The worst thing that can happen to you is not that you ruin your life. The worst thing that can happen to you is that you can be apart from God now and forever. So I don't know where all this exactly need to, feed, need, need to fit into your life, but I'll add to that, that no one has ever ruined their life by obeying God one day at a time. And while we're talking about David, it'll be pastoral negligence if I don't at least take a few minutes addressing sexual sin. While sexual sin of all types and all kinds have been one of the primary ways that God's people have been rebelling against him throughout history, the way it is pushed onto us today, I think God's people many years ago could have not imagined. The way we deal with sexual sin today is just unimaginable. In fact, in, in 1 Corinthians 6, 18, it says this, flee from sexual morality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are brought, bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. And now we have access to every sex act imaginable through our phones with more hours we can ever watch through a hundred lifetimes. In other words, instead of fleeing from sexual immorality, we have access to it right in our pockets. 
it's always been difficult to resist sexual temptation, always. But in our culture, the access is historically unimaginable now. And adding fuel to the fire is the cultural narrative that we're just animals with time and chance on our side. And when an animal wants to have sex, the animal has sex. That sex is an appetite that we have to feed it. And if you don't feed it, it is cruel and insensible. And then we're surprised we have sexual addictions in the rape culture. So many of us are caught up in this one degree or another. All of that, all of this, all should be driving us to the cross, to the grace that we have received through the bloodshed of Jesus, and we continue to receive every time we fail, to the sustaining power we need from God moment by moment to stand against temptation and hold fast to our trust that Jesus is better than sin. David's colossal fa- failure should remind us that he is not the Savior, and he's most definitely need, and he definitely most needed one, just like you and I. The second character I want to talk about is Bathsheba. Bathsheba is a victim, a sexual assault survivor. She suffered as a choiceless, voiceless victim at the hands of someone more powerful than her. Statistically, one in every four women, one in every six men are sexually abused in their lifetime. This is rampant in our country. And as a pastor, I have all the evidence I ever need to, be, to see that sin is harmful and destructive. Sexual abuse has a profound effect on a person. There's something uniquely painful and devastating about another human being forced control over your own body and doing with it as they please. It's haunting, it's dehumanizing sin to fall victim to. Someone who has been through this has their sense of autonomy and control ripped away from them. Possibly even their self-image due to the fact that they were treated like an object. And to make matters worse, many times they subtly or subconsciously feel partly responsible for what happened. Of course, it's not theirs, but that, that's something they will continue to, continue to struggle with. They, they still think, what's wrong with me that this would happen to me? Maybe if I hadn't worn that, maybe I shouldn't have gone there. Maybe I shouldn't have blank. And that is devastating. There's the swirl of thoughts and ideas always running through your mind and so much pain, and that pain will not go away. Sexual assault survivors so badly want some amount of control, so badly want a positive body image. So many origin stories of depression, anxiety, and fear, and substance abuse starts with a person experiencing sexual assault. It feels like all that has been torn away from them and all sorts of things begin to be substitute saviors, looking for some relief as they try to put their life back together. I remember I had a friend who, she said, um, a friend of mine who experienced sexual assault, and she told me every time when it's dark at night as she walks to her car, she had her keys splayed out like daggers between her fingers because she's terrified what may happen to her. And I thought, I never once had that feeling. So we have two characters here. David, who did something so terrible that he never thought he would do that he later would be racked with guilt and shame over this. 
broken over all the destruction that he has caused. Left with questions like, how could I have possibly ever done this? How could I ever be forgiven? How did this go so far? And then we have Bathsheba, who has something terrible done to her that she never dreamed would happen. She's left, like all survivors, trying to regain what was taken from her, feeling powerless and clean and hurt, choking down questions like, how could I clean myself? How do I rid myself of this disgrace? How do I numb myself from all this pain? Here's what I know for a fact. And this morning in our church, we have some Davids in here. To a certain degree, we're all Davids because we all have sinned and separated ourselves from God. But some of us have done so in especially hurtful ways and have caused damage that we couldn't dream of. And in our church, we also have some Bathshebas. Some who have been gruesomely hurt by sins of other people, especially sexual sins of others, who never dreamed that this would be part of your story. And to make matters more complicated, some of us identify with both. Like, yeah, I've been hurt like crazy by other people's sin, so I'm like Bathsheba in some ways, but I've also taken that pain and in turn hurt other people in very similar ways. No matter which you identify with, the good news is that Jesus comes for both and even through both. Jesus is uh, specifically born through David's lineage. David seemed like the perfect king until suddenly he wasn't until his sin nature has caused him to assault and murder the people who were loyal to him instead of protecting them. Through this, David learned that he wasn't the true king he needed. He would need another king, one who would die for his people instead of having his people die for him. And because of the cultural differences, this may not mean much to you, and it may seem like a consolation prize, but... Do you know the last mention of Bathsheba in Scripture is? Do you know what the last word on her life is? It's not this moment of disgrace. It actually comes to the lineage of Jesus. When it was listed out in the New Testament, and just be clear, what this means is out of all of David's wives, God picked an earthly lineage for Jesus. He said, that one. Bathsheba, the one that has so much taken from her. In their culture, for her, that would have meant the world. That God saw her pain and loss and responded in kind by lifting her head in dignity and honor. He raised her name from the mud and put it in the royal halls of King Jesus to show that sin done against her will not have the final say on her life and legacy. So for my Davids in the room, for those of us finding ourselves clutching hands over our mouths, wondering how we could ever hurt people like that, those of us who have done something you never do imagine that you would do that's racked with shame and guilt, here's the good news for you 
Just like David, your sin does not get the final word. It's part of your life and story, but it does not get the last word. Jesus does. Your failure does not get the last word word in your life. Jesus does. Your sin or sexual sin does not have the final say. You are forgiven, cleansed, and redeemed by Jesus. He's writing a story where that is not at the center. If you're in Christ, your truest identity is not a porn addict, an adulterer, or whatever fill-in-the-blank yours would be. That would not be the front and center when the credits roll on your life. But like David, the last word will be reconciled, forgiven, redeemed, man and, or woman after God's own heart, covered completely by the substitutionary righteousness of Jesus, the one and only unfailing king. And for those of us who are Bathshebas in the room, know just like David's act, God is displeased with what has happened to you. He's angry about it. And he will enact a more righteous punishment than you ever would. That sin will be paid for by Jesus or by the person forever in hell. Jesus was a victim. He was abused, a different type of abuse, but he was an innocent victim nonetheless. He was stripped naked and publicly shamed. His very life was taken from him. You have a God who can rightly say to you, I know what it is like to be a victim. I know what it is like to lose everything. And know that God intends to lift your head as well, to bring healing and honor and restoration, to bring freedom from anxiety and fear, to convince you that you are not damaged goods, but a royal son or daughter of the king of the heavens. For the work or therapy might be needed, but, but this story has good news for you. And I said earlier, sexual sin does not get the final word. That is true, but also neither does someone else's sin has the final word. Someone else's sin against you does not get the final word. Jesus does. So trust that God will restore honor to you, to remove your shame. Resist the temptation to strike out on your own, to gain back what was stolen from you. That will never work. Trust God to do the difficult work as you lean into him. Let him lift your head. Trust him to somehow, someway be the healer and the redeemer that nothing else has been able to. God is not in the numbing business. So going to him may not bring as much initial relief as other things, but trust him because numbing doesn't heal anything. And he wants to heal you. He wants to keep you from turning into a David in all of your hurt and pain. Trust your true king that he will never take advantage of you or hurt you like others have. Jesus is a better king who uses his power to love, who sees you, who cleanses you, who does not use his power to harm but surrenders his power so he can be hurt and be assaulted by others so he can forgive and heal you and bring you to his table. And to be clear, trusting God in all this process also means exposing the person who has hurt you and holding them accountable. Trusting God does not mean sin should stay hidden. 
and covered up. In fact, we're going to talk more about this next week, that bringing things out into the light, out of darkness, very much falls in line with God enacting his justice. And, and if that's something that you're afraid to do or you feel like you're unable to do alone, our pastors and our counselors are here to help you to do that so you don't have to do it alone. For all of us, sin does not need to have the final word on our lives. Not the sin that you have committed and not the sin committed against you. That's what the cross is all about. Forgiveness and cleansing and new life and hope and healing, that's what the gospel of Jesus is about. That's what we're doing here. I don't know what you think this morning is about, but this is, this is why I'm here. I need for my sin to not have the final word on my life. I need for the sins of others committed against me not have the final word on my life. I need something other than sin to have the device, decisive power over my life. That's why I'm here. That's what I'm doing. In my life, I keep making mess of things and hurting other people. I need some, I need some hope outside out of myself that I can do what other people can do. I need the hope that I can only find in Jesus. So no matter where you're at this morning, the invitation is come to the table of a better king than David. Come and feast on the broken body and blood of of King Jesus who, who was crucified and shed for you because all of us need a better king than David. So in a few moments, the band's going to come up and lead you guys to sing and worship. The communion tables will be open. That's what, that's what it means. That's why we do it every Sunday as much as we can is to remember all the sins that we have committed, all the harm we have hurt others, all the sins committed against us, it's ultimately will be paid for by Jesus. That's the only hope that we have to cling on to. That's what the communions are there for. So if you're a follower of Jesus, this is the moment for all of us to reset ourselves on a weekly basis to remember that beautiful truth, as difficult as it may be. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you that you see us. You see the sins that have been committed against us, the pain that we walk through. You see it all. That no matter how hard we try to run and cover it up or fake our way through it, you see the pain that we experience. And you deeply desire to heal us from it. Father, thank you that you're a God who, who, is, who is not okay with the brokenness that happens in this world, the, the sin that wrecks havoc in your people. That you're not apathetic towards it. In fact, that's why you sent your son Jesus. Um, to fully pay for the sin that's, that, yeah, that wrecks havoc all around us. Jesus, thank you that you're a savior who does not shy away from all of this. You did not shy away from the pain. 
that you have experienced all of it fully yourself, that you surrendered all of your rights as a as the king of the universe to bore our shame, bore our sins. Thank you that you're a savior that we can go to and you look at us and say, I know, I understand, I know how that feels. Thank you that no matter where we fall on all of this, Jesus, you can, yeah, that we can come to you for hope, that our own sins are paid for by you. And at the same time, you, you're a savior we can go to who understands what it feels like to be sinned against, to be a victim. Holy Spirit, we ask you to move this morning for the people who are hurting. We ask that you comfort them. Would you whisper in their hearts that you're not far, that, that the God of the universe sees them and desires to bring healing Holy Spirit, we ask that with all the weightiness and shame and guilt, would you push all of us towards the good news that we can find in the cross, that we don't try to numb ourselves, but we actually bring all this pain to our Father. Yeah, we need you to work. We love you. I'll pray all this in your name. Amen.